Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Every week, we feature writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me this week is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Say hi, Susan. <laughs> we also have with us Neil Halford, a computer game designer of tremendous uh, credentials, and uh, he's a science fiction writer himself. Uh, and our guest today is Jeffrey Thorne. Was writer of novels, comics, and screenplays, including scripts for Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, Star Trek: Voyager, uh, the Strange New World Star Trek anthology uh, number eight, and he's also the guy who designed the show and the pitch for Brian Singer's uh, Star Trek reboot proposal, Star Trek Federation. Welcome to the show. We're glad to have you with us. <laughs> oh, oh I finally got through the intro. Oh, I hate going yeah. off these scripts. <laughs> You're all right. You're all right. <laughs> uh, but one correction. Yeah. Um, uh, I've only written uh, Star Trek uh, novels and short stories. I was a. I sold a story to Star Trek: The Next Generation and pitched a great deal to the subsequent series, but uh, I did not write any of the episodes. No. Oh, so you sold the story? Yes. But they never produced the script. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of but, things happen with that. Yeah, um, in one case, uh, in some cases, what they'll do is they'll buy a story. Uh, in my case, mm -hmm. they'll buy a story, uh, and they truly mean to use it later, but what ends up happening a lot of times is they'll mine elements of that story since they own it. Uh -huh. And, like, the person who wrote the story will go, oh, that's mine, when they watch the show from that point forward. But the actual story might not actually get made by me. So that's what happened with the with Star Trek: The Next Generation. Oh, but, so they uh, sort of take your stuff and they make script salad out of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's they paid them. They can make salad. <laughs> they can make stroganoff. They can make whatever <laughs> they want. They can do what they want with it. Um, that's something that that you and I have in common, Jeff, is that we both had an opportunity to go in and pitch Star Trek, which is a little unusual, really, for most television shows because most most places you don't have that kind of open door policy. Oh, that's that true. They had a track. And so uh, talk a little bit about sort of what that experience was like and going in and doing a pitch at Star Trek. Well, okay. Um, in my case, it was uh, relatively uh, simple. Um, uh, there, you're, you're right to say that. At the time, I think only Star Trek and maybe MacGyver were the only shows uh, on the air 
that took uh, open unsolicited pitches, which was a nightmare for whoever was unlucky enough, in my case, me sometimes, to have to read all of those uh, scripts. But um, presuming that your, uh, your script was solid, um, they would bring you in, if you could get here to L.A., uh, uh, to pitch them additional scripts. I believe that's how Ron Moore got through the door. Um, and what they'll do is they'll, uh, you'll go in, you'll have an uh, a outline in your head of what your story is. Hopefully you have more than just one. And uh, you, you tell the, a room full of people you've never met your story. Uh, hopefully giving them the highlights that will make them wish to purchase it. And, in, and further than that, hire you to actually write it, which uh, each one of those things is a stage. So as I just said, you might sell a story, but you will not necessarily be the person who writes the script of that story, hence the credit that you sometimes see, story by X, written by Y. Right, right. Uh, the actual event of the pitch, uh, for me, I... I hate to bring this up myself, considering our pre-interview, but if you're an actor, it's not so bad. Um, uh, it's a room full of people. You've never mm -hmm. met them before. They mostly look at their own notes. Sometimes they'll ask you questions, and they just talk your story through. And if they like it, they generally you can generally kind of feel whether they like it or not. And if they don't, which is more than more often the case, um, then you just won't be asked back, basically. Or they'll say, well, "We've got something like that already in the pipeline." You know, or that's too similar or something we've already, we're already doing. What else you got? And in theory, you have something else. Um, group pitches like that are rare. Usually it's you and one other person, so it's not so heinous as that. Um, but uh, as most writers are generally introverts, introverts, um, the act of pitching itself is just like uh, walking on sheets of broken glass barefoot. <laughs> I've heard it described that way, actually. So being having uh, acting in your background made it easier for you to do those presentations and connect with your audience. So it, you didn't have that in the foremost in your mind while you were trying to convince people to buy your stuff. Not at all. Not yeah, at all. And also great. because I'd been an intern there prior to my pitch. I had gotten to witness other people's pitches crash and burn. So uh -huh. so you knew what not to do. Absolutely knew what not to do. <laughs> um, and I would say the biggest tip would be uh, to anyone who, does, even if you're a pro already, uh, is fortunate enough to get into that situation, uh, I would say uh, eye contact, be confident, um, and don't read the pitch. Like, Make, make sure as much of it is in your head as you can so that you're really sort of just talking to people rather than reciting something at them. Uh, a lot of the writers, I'm sure, were incredibly nervous and felt that it would make them at least be more sure of what they were saying if they could just read it. But if, if the guys you're pitching wanted to just read it, they wouldn't have asked you to come talk to them. Yeah, so, they want to know what your emotional connection is to that story and how exactly. much of it is in your head and how, how yes, much of exactly. it lives in your in, in your brain. And some of it is a nuance, you know, like there'll uh -huh. be, you have to say something concisely on a page that in a conversation you can flesh out a little bit and the person will nod their head. Oh, it isn't just that same old thing that I thought I knew what I was reading, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you actually mean this. I get it now, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really an opportunity to either shore up or correct for any misconceptions, any conceptions or misconceptions that the person you're, who's being pitched to uh, might uh, have pick, picked up from either your script or from your outline or presentation of some sort that was sit, sent in that was written. So did you actually manage to get anything past the story stage? 
Uh, I sold the story with the option to uh, buy, which means that had they wished to make the story in its entirety, they would have the option to hire me to be the screenwriter on it. Uh -huh. But they didn't. So, uh, and I went back to acting for about, <laughs> what, eight, ten years almost. <laughs> Now, was, that, was so, that TNG proper, or was that Voyager or DS9? TNG. TNG. Uh, I was there the first year Michael Pillar came on for, I think, four months as uh -huh. their intern. Um, and part of my job was to read the many scripts that came through. Oh, um, so you got, you were the poor schmuck who got to wade through the slush pile. Yeah, it was brutal. Oh, uh, it must have been... Uh, for every for every one script that was worth reading, there had to be ninety nine more that were Mary Sue's. Oh dear God! If only that ratio, that favorable ratio, you just <laughs> yikes! It was that bad. I mean, I I've I've done some of this stuff myself. No, I yeah. mean here's the horrible part of it is that, and it's a, it's it's weird. Like we're going to end up talking about the nuts and bolts of writing if we keep going on this, but. Everyone who's ever worked at a publishing company whose job it is to read, read go through the slush pile will vouch for this. And it, it applies to agents. Uh, it applies to theaters. It applies to, obviously, to t TV shows, although pretty much zero TV shows do this anymore, so I doubt it will ever come up again. Um, and uh, anybody who's reading submitted scripts that aren't coming through some sort of filtering organization, like an agency, uh, what you end up doing is you realize, like, I went in with the best intentions. I, I had a very sort of political viewpoint, like, look, why are they trying to keep out all these? There's a million talented writers out there, and it's just because of the system in Hollywood that they don't get past, you know, the gatekeepers. And I'm, I'm now one of those gatekeepers, albeit, you know, the most... Uh -huh. the lowest one, but I'm going to do what I can to promote those writers that I read and go, well, this will be a great Star Trek episode. And uh, and you just didn't see those scripts. What happened was I would read a couple, they'd have really good elements, but uh -huh. they wouldn't have the rest, and I'd read them all the way through. But what happened was it started taking up all of my time, and my job was not just that. Right? I had a lot of other interny uh -huh. things to do beyond just reading these scripts. And what would happen was you start to be able to pick out um, errors. Basically, you get into the mode of how can instead of how I started, which was how can I say yes to this, you get into the mode of how can I say no to this quickly, because anyone who can force you not to say no, by definition, is a person whose quality of work is enough to take to your bosses. Like but the first, say, like the first five pages is nothing but exposition text. You're probably done. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> I say it's easy to pick up Mary Sue characters. Anyone who saves the captain on the second page and has a name that's similar to the author's is probably a Mary Sue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are not things I'm just making up. I'm, no, I know. I know. I believe it. With drawings in them, scripts written on, literally written in pencil on, on legal paper. Um, like, and so you basically, you give the script as much as you can, but you're, you're expecting it to fail after a certain point simply because of the ratios. I think of all, the, I've probably read, God, between 500 and 1,000 scripts but the, over the course of three and a half, four months. But Yeah. Oh. You know, my, that makes my eyes burn just thinking about it. That's, by the time I was up to maybe script 20, I wasn't reading them all. I would get through the teaser or maybe into Act One, and, I'm like, and then you'd hear something like, "What? No, you can't do a Doctor Who crossover." No. Uh -huh. Yikes! <laughs> things, things like that. Yeah. So using unlicensed characters. Okay. Well. <laughs>
because who knows, maybe maybe as soon as I get to this very thinly disguised Doctor Who character, um, that I go, all right, I can't do this because it's, it's clearly Doctor Who. There's no way to do this if it's not Doctor Who. Now, the rest of the script could have been awesome, uh -huh. as, just as a script. And as a writing sample in theory, you could send that out and have people go, oh, this is funny, and maybe you can get an agent out of that. But when you're submitting specifically to a specific show, you can't get away with that crap. So it was a waste of my time to keep reading point and so i just throw it in a circular file they have a little you know check off card that you can use uh -huh. to whether it was worth if it's a pass it's really easy if it's a yes pass it on to the boss then you have to write a little sort of what they call coverage yeah write a short outline script and say why you're mm -hmm. passing on so um i think i maybe passed on three scripts to the bosses in that time and none of them were and by the way it was chastised on one of them for being nice yeah. like, uh -huh. I, yeah, I, I had a kind of a, a question for you. Is that uh, one thing that I was often told whenever I first started trying to get into script, script writing myself was they said never. Uh, he said it's that if you want to actually get the attention and get in there for an opportunity to do a pitch, uh, they, a lot of people said the rec they recommended that you not send them a script for their show, but to actually send them a script for somebody else's show, like send them a, a, a script for the X Files or Lucy or something else like that. Did you ever get a script like that where it was clearly something written for something or something else, but you no. liked writing it up or anything like that? Did not at Star Trek. We'll rephrase that. Yes, I'm sure at the upper levels that there were people who were getting through their agents what we call spec scripts, which uh, could be anything. Um, they'll send you. You could have written an ER and sent that in to uh, Star Trek just to say the writer would like to write your show. Here's an example of their best work. Uh, even if it's nowhere near, no, not similar at all to what Star Trek is. But as this was focused on the people who were coming in who were unagented, then they were actually asked to do the that a normal writer would not do as a professional in Hollywood, which is uh -huh. what sort of our show. Uh -huh. Because at worst case, the, 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 the best of worst case scenarios would have been what happened to me. We really like it enough to buy it, but not enough to make it because we can take the elements we like out of it and use them. So... Let's say that you're some guy, some kid. Let's say you're a 15-year-old in, in Iowa who's no, no contact with Hollywood at all, and you sent them some script, and they said, hey, yeah, we like this. We're going to send you this contract uh, story with option to buy. And then they pay you for the first part, which is the story. That's uh -huh. a success story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And then, and then the script might have some element in it like, oh, uh, holodeck. Why didn't we think of that? And then they use that, and then it's in every script, you know. It's every story they they do from then on, but the, the script never gets made. So, uh, how does this process differ from the the you you've also done science fiction novels and you've done comic books? So, how does how does the process the pitch process differ for these different kinds of mediums? It doesn't truly vary that much. I mean, with short stories, there's no pitch. You just read the guidelines on a on whatever, you know, anthology or magazine you're selling. Uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, you, send, you send them the entirety of your work, if mm -hmm. it's a short. Mm -hmm. Most companies these days deal strictly through agents, but rephrase that. That's not true. Most of the big publishing companies, the big six as they're called, they pretty much only deal with agents or if you're lucky enough to be the friend or child of someone high up in one of the companies, uh, then obviously uh, you can get your script on some, uh, your, your story on somebody's desk or novel. But the guidelines are generally pretty clear. And then the equivalent of three to five chapters of your book, you give an overall outline of the book, 
theory, this comes from your agent, so they will read it at some point, which at that point will be probably a minimum of six months before they read it and then another three months before you hear any response, and that response is generally no. Um, but there are, there are second tier and third tier uh, companies uh, that will just take a, take a, with the same guidelines being followed, similar guidelines being followed, you can just basically send them your novel, and if they dig it, they'll buy it. You know, the money's probably less at the slightly smaller companies, obviously, um, as are the royalties and all that, but you have the, it has the virtue of being essentially an open field, and that's not getting into self-publishing. It has become this gigantic boom uh, of people being able to just upload their books and sell them, and some people are doing quite well at that. Um, but, yeah, so uh, it's really come up that way. Um, with with uh, comic books, again, it slightly varies from company to company. There's pretty much no point in pitching either Marvel or DC. If you're pitching to Marvel and DC, the first rule is don't. Uh, they they basically tap who they want. They pick from the pool of, uh, frankly, friends and uh, cronies or from those few people who make it really big in the indie world, um, which is where the doors are basically wide open. Uh, Dark Horse takes pitches. Image certainly takes pitches. I believe IDW takes pitches. Um, and as you wind your way down, um, pretty much all of the independent companies, with I think the exception of Oni, because um, they're just a closed shop, basically. Uh-huh. And the pitches generally involve uh, three, I would say, well, it depends on the company, but I'd say one to five-page outline of your entire idea. Let's say it's an ongoing story or a mini-series or a one-shot or whatever, uh, outlining what it is, and then some sample art from what the book will look like. You really can't just pitch as a writer. You kind of have to go in as a team or as a real big team um, to show them what they're going to get, because writing alone is generally not going to do it. That's so, a, that's I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that comic book pitches uh, had to be sort of a team effort. Well, you can pitch yourself, I think, maybe, like, Top Out, there's a thing where they do an actual talent outreach for writers. And it happens once a year. It's literally a talent search. A friend of mine actually just was one of the winners. But um, they are pretty much unique. You, the, it's not the job of the comic book publisher to set you up with a guy who can draw it or a lady who can draw it. Uh, so, in fact, if you don't come in with that package, it's not unheard of. But it's as close to unheard of as to not really make it attractive to try. As contrasted to uh, how things work with uh, novelists right. who, uh, you know, you go in with your book and, you know, you don't get to pick the person who does the art for your cover. Exactly. That's usually the publisher that figures that out. So it's yep. exactly the reverse of, of that process. Um, well, you got to remember, though, publishers, even the smaller ones, they're taking a pretty big bite if they're doing it in print. If they're making a physical book, they're assuming the, the burden, the financial burden of all advertising, all physical production, distribution, um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and that, not, not, that's not even counting editorial. So uh, they have a vested interest in how you get marketed. And they have a vested interest in deciding what, what's the best image that will market your book. They're not always right. That's the problem, certainly. But I think a lot of writers, especially in the, you're seeing this in the self-publishing world, uh, of which I'm in the self-publishing world, by the way. I'm not just, you know, I've got a lot of so-called self-published books through my own company. But um, one of the things is that a lot of people who are excellent at writing, and they may well be excellent writers, they're crap at design. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
they think because they wrote it, they know it. They know it's best for how it should be designed, and that's almost never true. This is why you need a team. Yes, it so, takes a village to raise a book. <laughs> yeah, if you're lucky enough to have uh, similar skills in another area where you can actually, if you could be hired as a desi designer for somebody else's book, then yes, you can design your own book. But if you don't, if your skills aren't high enough for that. You really should find someone who's professional, who's as good an artist as you are a writer to design a book. One particular standout that I can think of is Elizabeth Watteson, and I hope I'm getting the name pronounced correctly, but she is, a, uh, she is an author of uh, sort of, I guess they're steampunk. They're definitely set in the Victorian era, and she explores um, interesting social themes in her books, but she is not only a really good writer, she's also a gifted illustrator. See, that's and she illustrates her own books. And she, so she's like one of the rare, rare few right. that can actually pull this off. But that said, she's also, she also self-publishes her work. Right. And she's, and a, she's a member of the League of Extraordinary Ladies, which uh, we, were talking about, uh, we were talking about Stephanie Thorpe um, earlier <laughs> on about ElfQuest and her work with the the peenies and uh, she's also a member and and real yeah kristen netipak is also a member and so am i wow yeah. so uh, you, you know the league of extraordinary ladies i this is a phenomenon this is this came out of nowhere like a year and a half ago it was a facebook page yeah it was a facebook page yeah. and with just if the field was really flat right yeah yeah Mm -hmm. are open to everyone strictly on basis of ability. There's a there's a few men in there too. There, there, a few extraordinary laddies, I suppose. <laughs> you, don't to, you don't need to create groups like this if the doors were just wide open and it was just your skills, mm -hmm. a seat at the table. You know, um, uh, our, our sadly our industry is not like the sports industry where all you have I can run fast. You know, I can catch the ball better. I'm I'm a better quarterback than every other quarterback. No one cares if you're... I mean, in theory, I'd like to think there'll be a female quarterback at some point because she's just that damn good, you know? But uh, in our industry, sadly, there's a lot of opinion filtering uh, the quality for the people, and uh, it, creates a, it creates an unfair disadvantage requiring people of like gender or oh, like yeah. sexual preference or like skin color. Well, and they, you tend to get pigeonholed as well. Oh, you're a, you're a computer, you're a game programmer. You can't possibly be any good as an artist. Uh, or oh, You're a you're, woman of color. You have to go with this publisher. Yes. I don't think know. so. Th yeah, things yeah. like that. And so you, I, I'm, I'm working actually, it's funny we talked about this in a pre-interview and I so many different weird things going on, but uh, I'm doing a Steam, a, a, an anthology I'm in called Steam Funk. Uh, is oh. African-American authors writing Steam Thank Funk. you! And it wasn't my idea, I was like... I love the idea! To me, I, every time I know the idea is good, I'm like, oh, damn, I should have thought of that! You know, because I saw Wild Wild West, the movie, and, you know, I love Will Smith, but, you know, the sociology of of yeah. Jim West and that... Don't make, don't get me started. No, it's just wrong. <laughs> it's, you know, love him, love, you know, some of the things, not everything about that movie, but... but he was a spider. Yeah, the giant spider. Shh, ask Kevin Smith about the giant spider. Why don't you do that? And I'll stand back. I'll be over here. <laughs> I mean, but tell us about Steam Funk. 
Game Funk is a collection of stories written by different authors. Um, obviously, it's an anthology, Jeffrey. Um, and uh, I was approached by Milton Davis, a publisher out of Atlanta, who's been doing... He started with this thing called Sword and Soul, because when you think of Conan's world, you tend to not think of black people being in it. And he sort of branched out into steampunk, and for the similar reasons, you know, if you're if you're setting something in certain time periods in certain cities, and every in them is uh, white, uh, well, that's not, first of all, it's not historically accurate, and two, why can't we play too? Um, so here, here. I don't know. Ask Grace Jones. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, if you can get within fifty feet of her. <laughs> okay, James Earl Jones. Yeah, but I mean, like. It, it, it's either lighting a candle or you're constantly in debate about racism or sexism or genderism or something. And although I do enter into those debates from time to time, I generally like to light a candle instead. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. When people are um, doing that, I try to support it. In this case, the work was good enough that I was like, not only do I support your efforts, I would love to be able to play. Can I play? And they're like, yeah, sure. So I submitted a story and they accepted it. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's they're, all the stories are good. There's no uh, so how no, many how many stories in the collection? I think there are. Well, I have to think. It's sitting right here. Hold on. Um, <laughs> the book is out. This is something we. Can this get. is something you have your that have is in uh, print. There are one, two, three, four, five. Twenty. Ooh. Oh wow! Very so. Fun. And now, when did this book come out? It came out this year, uh, okay. within the last three months. I think. What, what's the publisher? The publisher is MV Media, M like Mary, V like Valentine's Day Media, um, and the book is called Steam Funk. Oh, oh, that sounds that delicious. To me. That, oh, that sounds delicious. See the cover, you're going to be like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could hold it up to the microphone, and we might be able to. Yeah, we'll just just hold it up to the light. And we'll yeah. <laughs> yeah, the cover is awesome. When you see it, you'll be uh -huh. like, holy. And M MV Media, MV Media, and the, they're the publisher for it. Uh, they got a bunch. They got a few books up now, um, uh -huh. and they're a publisher. They're a small publisher, but a publisher. Um, but yeah, so I would say of the three, three or four ways you can get something made, I would say publishing of books is the flattest, most egalitarian uh, field because all anyone has to go on, at least initially, is your words. Uh, mm -hmm. Any age, any gender, any skin color, any nationality—you literally can be anything you want as long as you write well. And then it's just a normal gladiatorial best run wins, according to yeah, of course, each editor Caesar, and you have to please them. Yeah, right. Well, and and the uh, the great thing about it is that you don't have to necessarily hit a home run and sell your first book to Daw or uh, or Tor or one of those. You can go to a smaller press. And you have, you might not make as much money, but you do have an opportunity. The door is open, and well, you can rack up some practice and rack up a history yeah. that might get you into some of those big, get you access to some of the bigger publishers, publish, publishers. That's, you know, I really have to stop have renting a, the teeth. I, I need know. to buy my own rented set. lips. Rented mm, lips. I want to know where you rent them from. <laughs> Yummy. Um, well, you know, one of my smarter writing teachers once said that the first first million words are only practice. <laughs> you may sell your practice, but they're just practice. It's it's how you learn your craft. Uh, big six rules of Heinlein: um, you got to write, uh, you got to finish what you write, 
you got to put everything you write on the market and you don't, and then you go write something else. And as soon as your writing comes back, you send out another thing. But before your writing comes back, you send out another thing. Basically, and you don't write, you don't edit, you don't edit your work beyond spell checking and some stuff with concision. Um, you don't edit it unless an editor is paying you to edit it. Damn right. Oh, good advice. I like that. Well, you know what? Because the thing about writers is we're noodlers, too, most of us. So You'll never send it out if you're sitting there noodling. You don't know what they're looking for. You don't know what the quality of their ability to tell a good story from another story is. And, yeah, you're going to get rejections, but that's only one person. So it's not like a team of all the editors in the editorial kingdom got together and raised their glasses one night and said, all right, we're going to look at all of Jeff's work. And now this one's terrible. It was never anywhere. You sent him a note with a burning sword in it, you know. <laughs> hey, free sword. <laughs> Don't throw us and put that blood on our response, you know. <laughs> They've forgotten you as soon as they didn't like the story. They don't remember your name. So, uh, but that same story will please the hell out of some other editor for a completely different set of reasons. It's not your job to judge that. It's your job to keep it on the market. So, uh, so Jeff, I was going to ask you, um, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, you and, and your, your good buddy Todd and talk to us a bit about Prodigal? Oh, Prodigal. Okay. Uh, Prodigal's a comic book. Um, Todd and I met um, several years prior to doing Prodigal. The last name on Todd. Todd Harris, Todd Harris, the stellar genius that is, I am so lucky he condescended to work with me on comic book stuff. Um, he's a phenomenally talented artist. His, even his work in our books does not even touch his abilities. It's ridiculous. It makes me sick. Um, but uh, we worked together on several projects that never saw daylight. And the last one was one I can't really talk about for NDA purposes, but um, it went so poorly that it was just really one of those like body blows you take every once in a while oh, yeah. in a professional career that actually influenced your real life. And uh, Todd said that after that, he's like, why are we messing around with these people who keep not doing their jobs right? We do our jobs right. Why don't we just do their jobs too? So we formed a small company called Genre 19, and we put out this book called Prodigal. And uh, the first uh, installment of which is subtitled The Egg of First Light. Uh -huh. And it tells the story of Byron Lennox and Pei Mi Jacinto, uh, who are retrieval specialists. <laughs> uh, they will go get anything or anyone you want for a price. No questions asked. And uh, Byron is what I describe as an indestructible man, but not in a way that's really ever been described for an indestructible person and pay is the brains of the operation he does the field work she does the planning sets up the contracts gets the clients uh and her of the two of them she's the one you really have to watch out for uh byron is essentially um byron is essentially a guy who would be happy playing video games and eating hot dogs and going to baseball games but he happens to have this one knack where no number of opponents that he's aware of can can beat him in a fight so uh, she's partners up with Pei, who is unknown to herself initially, is one of these um, polymath savants, but mm, she's uh -huh. a street kid in Malaysia. So um, she didn't realize how smart she was until she formed a street gang of children that got so po powerful that the established mafias had to band together to get rid of them. <laughs> and Pei is the only one who survived. 
And in her travels trying to escape that part of the world, she comes across this other guy, Byron, who's dealing with the advent of his power, this new power he's got, which isn't as pretty at first. We don't tell this in the, in the adventure, mm-hmm. but they form this partnership and they basically run around stealing stuff. Um, and they're, they're ex- exceptional at it. But the fun of the book is not that. That's the Indiana Jones part of it. If it's, it's the workplace banter between Bay and Byron that we think sells the book because they deal with these extraordinary circumstances and all Byron wants to talk about is contract points in the middle of fighting a dragon or something. Mm-hmm. He's like, you say there was a no dragon clause here? Why is there a dragon? You promised me there was not going to be a dragon. And she said, well, technically that's not a dragon. It's a dinosaur with ion cannons mounted on the side of its head. So <laughs> Shut up and fight. Shut up and fight. You know, that's awesome. I've got to read this. I've got to read this. Whoops. As you can read the first, the first, uh, we're remastering the first uh, miniseries for thrillbent.com. Uh-huh. And we're calling it uh, uh, Prodigal Remastered um, because we're going to do Prodigal 2, but we want people to know who they're dealing with. So Thrillbent was like, why don't you just run the original Prodigal through our site? And it's free. So. Oh, my. You just show up every week, and you'll get a new installment. And by the time that installment's done, in theory, we'll be done with Prodigal 2, and it'll roll right into Prodigal 2, uh, the title of which is The Pandora Intelligence. Ooh. And uh, it's, believe me, if, you, if you're old enough to remember Moonlighting... Sure. Uh, yes. It's on the show. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself by saying that. So you're dating me, and I'm old, too, so... <laughs> ask you to tell me i just you would know in your own minds if, how old you are if i but, if i was dating myself i'd probably be a hermaphrodite <laughs> <laughs> i know he's not i've checked <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah you mix moonlighting and indiana jones uh, i'm gonna feel for what we're doing with Brian. that sounds like a lot of fun and i can hardly wait to go take a look at it this is the same a commercial model that's used by I'm I'm very fond of bringing these people up because they're wonderful people. Uh, the, Kaya and Phil Folio, um, uh, the creators of what happened? Girl Genius. Oh Girl yeah, Genius. Girl Genius. Yeah, love them. But they're they're you know raising two children and and you know running a family on this business of uh, Girl Genius, three and, pages a week for free, but. You buy the books, you buy the swag, you buy the T-shirts, and I do. They sell sell a lot of books because people want that book-in-the-lap, visceral experience of reading an actual comic book or comic novel or having it on their shelves, you know, so they can pull it out and, and, and just, you know... Here, read this. Here, read this, exactly. Podcast is the specialty comic book shop, which although many of my friends run them, and I'm obviously, I have my own favorite local comic shop that I go to, and I hope to God it lasts as long as I want to keep going there at least, mm-hmm. uh, that the specialty shop is generally not friendly to people who don't already read comics. It's not a thing, it's not a place where people who, who don't already read comics go to for the most part. Whereas the stuff that's happening on the web now, this digital comic explosion, allows people to see it and decide just on sight, do I like this? And even if they weren't comic book fans, if they like the art, which is usually the grab, right? The art is the grab. Yeah, it usually is. You're not going to dislike Todd's art. So uh, all I have to do is hold up my end up, hold my end up with words, and we're good. 
Now, uh, uh, did you by any chance happen to show, uh, whenever you, uh, there's a, a television program that you worked on recently, and uh, unfortunately we recently lost, uh, which was very sad to see go, uh, but did, whenever you went to Leverage, did you show them Prodigal by any chance? Because I'm just seeing kind of a, a gangster. Oh my god, <laughs> I'd love to see the Leverage people uh, produce Prodigal, uh, that'd be awesome. I'd be the first person to check in for five, ten years to do that. Is <laughs> um, one of the partners, my ex-boss, uh, John Rogers, is one of the partners at Thrillbit, and it was actually him who approached us about doing Prodigal. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, they like the work. It's very much in the same sort of um, comedic adventure tone uh, as as uh, as Leverage was. Um, we, we, we lean more towards adventure. The comedy is very much comedy of words. It's not a lot of slapstick or anything like that. And not a lot of visual jokes, but, um, if you read it, you will laugh. Um, and, um, yeah, so we did that. And, uh, uh, John, John uh, Rogers quite enjoyed prodigal. And now he's part of the reason we're rolling right into prodigal too, instead of doing one of our other projects to get that out on the market faster. So, um, yeah, so you're going to get a minimum of, I would say a minimum of 24 weeks of two stories of Prodigal over the next few months, starting whenever they launch the first, you know, first week. Well, you'll um, keep us apprised of this so we can run that on our website, okay? And I, listen, I rarely say this, I guarantee if you like the kind of movies I think you like, you will like Prodigal quite a bit. Okay. I'm, def I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking this out. Um, I'm I will say that I've read it and it's great stuff. So, so I, I, I'm I'm agreeing with what Jeff says. Thank you, Neil. It's fun. <laughs> I want to go back and read. I want to go find uh, Steampunk and read that. Uh, I've, while while you were talking, I have already downloaded it for Kindle. Awesome. So okay. you get your, you know, quarter, however much. Hooray you know, for the internet. Hooray for the internet. Yeah. yeah. God bless us living in the future. Um, uh, and the other thing, um, which people, it's a little late now, we did um, four installments of another project, uh, Journeyman, uh, in Dark Horse Presents over the last four months, starting in January. Um, and that was the easiest way to describe Journeyman would be if the Pirates of the Caribbean were Doctor Who. Uh, um uh, their journeymen are people who can move throughout the multiverse, trans transversing dimensions, um, all via different means. There's no uniform quality that allows you to be a journeyman except the ability to move between all the different realities of the multiverse. Um, and outside of our own, or actually since there's an infinite number, um, our central universe, the one you and I know, is not really sophisticated enough to have made contact with journeymen as a, as a, as a fact of life. But the rest of the multiverse is basically one sort of giant thing, and the different universes are treated more like countries that you can't get to easily. And the journeymen are how you get to them. They open doors. They lead you through the natural breaks in realities for money. And there's a journeyman guild, and we focus on um, Jay McDuffie Swift, who is our journeyman that we like, journeyman that we like. And in the first installment, he picks up his first partner um, ever, uh, uh, Dr. Haley Shore, and uh, through a series of hopefully amusing and interesting events, destroys her life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
for professor of life uh-huh. to the point where she ends up in jail and no one will believe that a man from another dimension fighting a giant hairy monster for a piece of parchment found in the desert um, is responsible for all the death and destruction that has happened in the last 24 hours so, <laughs> mm. I hate when they don't believe that she goes to jail and then he comes to her jail cell and says well you can sit here and go to the asylum or go to prison for the rest of your life or you can come do what I do and so she says, like any intelligent woman, I believe I'll be going with you. And <laughs> that's the story. And it's just the adventures yeah. of the two of them as she sort of decides whether she's got the juice to even be his sidekick, much less an actual journeyman. So she's an apprentice journeyman. There's something wrong with that. <laughs> so is, are, journey. the journeyman, uh, is it a natural ability that they have or is it something that they can learn? Some of them have technology that they are able to use that is unique to them. Some of them have magical abilities because they come from universes where the laws of physics are different and magic actually works. Um, some of them are simply evolved, where they are naturally um, citizens of the multiverse. One of the, the first thing that allows you to become a guild member of the Journeyman Guild is you have to prove that without, if you were naked, essentially, between dimensions. Um, now that, like I say, it can be you, you read the wrong scroll in your magical universe and now you can just jump or you are a creature that was evolved in the multiverse sort of, and can now jump in and out of the different realities as you wish. Or, uh, you have a bracelet fused to your body from your technological society that allows you to target the breaks and universes and slide between them. It really doesn't matter as long as it's something that if you were stripped naked, um, your ability to be a journeyman would not be removed. So uh-huh. not anyone can do it, um, but those that can all have unique means of doing so, which I thought was fun because although we're only going to tell the story, the primary story of, of Swift and Shore, um, when we meet other journeymen, the means by which they do their journeying is uh, considerably different than the way Swift does it. So um, so is this a milieu that you created yourself or are you working in someone else's? Oh, uh, journeyman is project number two from Genre 19, which is the company that Todd and I, uh, Todd Harris and I put together to make Prodigal. Ah, uh, okay. So, um, and then Dark Horse, you got it to, you yeah, got Dark Horse are, to pick it up. Yeah, and they're our publisher. They put us in their Dark Horse Presents anthology, which they use to promote new people, which technically we still are, uh, as well as people you might know, like, you know, Neil Gaiman or uh, Matt Wagner, you know, uh, people, Howard Chaikin, people who've been doing it a while at the top of their game. Yeah, a while. You know, so um, it's really fun to be included with that crowd of people because even if they never heard of us, if you put Neil Gaiman's cover, name on the cover, they're going to pick it up. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Uh, um, and that's just awesome. So we just finished that, and uh, we're, we're, we're both doing separate projects right now. He's in New York doing... Uh, boards, storyboards for the Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I am currently working on a couple of projects that cannot be named due to non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, those wouldn't be the ones that involve the uh, the uh, gorillas from outer space with the tutus and the, yeah. and the yeah. vats full of noodles almondine. Found me out. You found me out. <laughs> No, it's got to be rice because that's you, gluten. He can't have gluten in anyway. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So, it's gluten-free. so I would like to talk to you about another. You're talking about sort of being associated with with bigger names. Uh, there was kind of a big stir on the internet uh, about a year a year ago uh, 
um, where a certain Star Trek project uh, got kind of uh, kicked up uh, regarding Brian Singer. Oh, uh, yes, I remember this. And uh, called Star Trek Federation. Yes. And so uh, you have a connection to that little project, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I can talk about it. Uh, I mean, the, it's not going to happen, so I don't think there certainly was no contractual agreements between anyone. Um, all right, Star Trek Federation. Um, Star Trek Federation was conceived initially as a, as a, as a potential project by a combination of uh, Brian Singer, Brian Fuller, and Chris McQuarrie. Um, and uh, to a secondarily, to a secondary extent, Robert Burnett, Robert Meyer Burnett. Um, they wanted to. They, at that time, there was no Star Trek. Price uh, was either dying or was about to, or had already died. Um, I think and, it was already um, gone at that point. And there were no, there were no films. There was no Star Trek reboot because the, the field was wide open. So it started to boil down to either J.J. Abrams or Brian Singer, both of whom had thrown. I mean, a lot of. And, uh, uh, J. Michael Straczynski had thrown in his hat. A couple of other people had thrown in theirs. Um, and but the two big front runners were Brian Singer and J.J. Uh, Abrams. Only in that they both expressed serious interest. There was no real pitch, so there was a, there was sort of a race going on. But the problem was is that none of the big guns on this project had time to really sit down and come up with what they thought would be the best ever Star Trek episode. So they contracted it out, and I was the contractor. And my mandate was basically, as, and, 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 and Robert uh, Burnett sort of acted as overseer slash uh, editor-in-chief, I guess. So if I came up with something that was too far beyond, you know, the lines, uh, which, by the way, is not unlikely. Uh, uh, no, no, that's too far. Come on back in with the rest of us. <laughs> And uh, uh, and my mandate was to go forth and make a new Star Trek show for a modern audience. And I said, what what are the what are the parameters? And they said, make it Trek, make it good. So uh, I went out and I conceived uh, what they titled Star Trek Federation, which is um, uh, set in the future of whatever we've all seen of the old before the reboot um, Star Trek. So post post Voyager. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, about 300 odd years, maybe more. Um, and the idea that I started with was essentially that Star Trek is an aspirational show as it was initially conceived. So it's all about what's out there and how, you know, Gene, Gene Roddenberry's uh, basic thesis was we've solved almost all of our problems at home that can be solved. Uh, race, gender, faith, all of that stuff has been fixed. We've, we've settled all those questions and we're all getting along with each other. Now we can focus on the really important work of exploration. What the hell is out there? You know, and that for the 60s was a fantastic sort of, you know, best and brightest message. It was great. Um, I think over the years, and, you know, due to probably the most um, aggressive, most consistent, and I think, frankly, with the possible possible um, uh, competition from the Doctor Who fan base, the most benign seri- set of fans in the history of fandom. I don't think you've ever heard about an incident of violence breaking out at a Star Trek convention, ever. <laughs> uh, very but, rarely. It's but, very rare. Uh, so I thought, all right, well, if Gene was alive now and there was no Star Trek existing in existence, what would he do looking at the world right now? What kind of a show would he come up with to tell the same kind of aspirational stories, but which would not be considered hokey by the audience? Um, and I uh, came up with what we call Federation, which basically has the Federation in decline. 
um, or in stagnation is a better way of saying it. It wasn't a dystopia by any means, but the problem with um, creating a utopia is it's freaking boring. Yeah. Uh, people, don't, uh, people don't build new devices if all the devices they have solve their problems. You know, you don't, and people don't, it's a, it's a myth that people invent for the sake of inventing. I mean, some do, but if there's no, if there's nothing pressing them to go, you know, if there's a need that needs to be filled, I need to understand this, or I need to, I need to fill this box with the thing that it's empty of right now. But there are no empty boxes in the Federation. There's no money. They, they fabricate things out of literally thin air. So there's no, like, I don't even know how you could commit a crime other than a violent one in the Federation. But why would you do that since we all get along so well? You know? So um, what I basically did was I projected forward. I made uh, the planet Bajor was essentially as if Tibet was a planet um, with the Dalai Lama ruling that planet. And they basically check out a Federation the day-to-dayness of the Federation, ceding their seat on the council to the Ferengi as their proxies, um, who immediately turned their faith into a gigantic business. Um, <laughs> of course. Except on... It's Vedic uh, land. <laughs> except for uh, Bajor, where the Bajorans are only concerned with the prophets and being spiritual. They have literally no contact. Uh, they don't, and could not care less, because that's all beneath them. The, the, uh, the Klingons have um, moved away from their sort of Viking, quasi-Viking, quasi-Samurai uh, uh, incarnation into essentially warrior priests. Their society has evolved to the point where they are what Japan became, um, which was a fairly feat um, uh, group of uh, honor-bound, incredibly efficient killers who were by no means berserkers. Um, and it's all very spiritual. Um, so they are not, they're, they're, they're probably more dangerous technically, but nowhere near as hostile. Um, uh, Romulus has become part of the Federation having, um, having, uh, re, what was, what was the title of this? Reunification. Reunification. Right, with, the, with Vulcans. And they are forced to be reckoned with now that they're one group. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, Earth. And what has happened is because everything's so great and we've beaten pretty much every enemy the Federation has ever faced, they beat, right? They beat uh-huh. the Borg, they beat the Dominion, they beat the Romulans, essentially. They, they beat V'ger, for God's sakes. They, 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 stop, they stymied the Q, you know? So, um, so what's, what do they fight? They're teenagers. That's it. Bored <laughs> <laughs> teenagers. Yeah, so everybody's sitting around in Utopia, and what's left to the Federation is sort of to act as a, uh, a protective-slash-police uh, organization for the fringe worlds, which are on the edge of the unknown still, and for those frictions that might grow up between, you know, um, species that just cannot get along no matter what, you know. And there's a little bit of uh, pulling out. People have been pulling out of the Federation because it's no longer necessary because all conflicts have been essentially settled and, and everyone's happy with the settlement. Um, and so we're using a fleet of ships that have not been really upgraded since the last time you saw them. Uh, so they're all old now. And you have a crew of primarily humans and humanoids protecting a galaxy that is largely not humanoid. And so there's a little bit of racial friction, racial tension, because there's this question of, well, how come it's always, you know, you little two-legged biped things that show up? Uh, to save the day, and you're always saving according to your crazy values when us bug people wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah, you know? yeah. And what throw into this mix um, this thing called the Sojourner event, 
which is a starship comes to the rescue of two planets that are being besieged by, a, at that point, unknown um, alien aggressor. And they're the only ship in the, in, the, uh, in the vicinity that can get there quickly enough. To it's always the only ship in the quadrant. Hey! Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but they have to make a decision. Which, which planet do we go to? You can't do both. It's a Kobayashi Maru situation. Uh-huh. Right? So their choice is they go to the closer one, which makes sense. Right? Sadly, for politics, the closer one is a human colony. So, but okay. rejected saving a bunch of alien, visually aliens, to save a bunch of people that look like them. Which they did not save. They got there in time to find the aftermath of this, this force having just, just done horrible things to these people. And then they were attacked, and there's only one survivor. This guy becomes one of the leads in the show. And um, uh, he quits Starfleet over it. Starfleet fractures further, the Federation rather, fractures further, because uh, there's this sense of, well, you guys are speciesists, I guess? Yeah, uh, yeah. And Human racists. So, you, you look at things that look like you more fondly than things that don't look like you. Uh, and so there's that tension going on. And then um, many years later, a similar event happens, and the only ad thinks it's connected um, basically uses a black books operation to build the Enterprise, or their new version of the Enterprise, using cutting-edge tech, um, and, populates it with, and, and uh, populates it with officers of her choosing. And basically she says that this mission of this new enterprise is to create unity in the Federation. It's essentially a flagship promoting unity uh-huh. in the Federation. It's going to fly around and, you know, I, I don't know, do tricks. <laughs> Show people how cool it is for us all to be working together again. We don't want the Federation to break up. Her reasoning for this is there's just some horrible enemy out there that kicked our butt the first time and just left. We have no idea how to fight them. We have no idea how their tech works. They just showed up, massacred a planet, two planets and left, and now they're back again. And no one believes they're an issue. They don't even think it's the same thing except her. Um, so she puts her ship together, has them go Shanghai, the guy, quit, quit Starfleet to be part of that crew, and they're going to go investigate this new ascension, and that's what kicks off, um, kicks off the show. The first four episodes are about what that is, who that is, uh, can we deal with them, how do we beat them. You get a sort of a travel log of how the universe works now, the, the society works now. And you get to meet some new kinds of aliens. Um, the doctor has permanently implanted um, Borg technology in her body that she uses in her doctoring. Um, our, uh, we have a, what's called a, a political officer now, which we never had before, uh, who is a genetically engineered human being designed specifically for the post that he's in. Um, uh, and he really reports directly back to the Admiralty. He's less of a crew member and more of a spy. Um, uh-huh. And uh, let's see who else. Oh, our engineer is called uh, Diz. He's the 34th distillation of blue, um, which means he scooped out bag of gas from an intelligent gas world that has um, three different colors as it's comprising its intelligence. So they scooped out a big bunch of blue, shoved it in a suit that makes him look like a guy, and call him Diz because he's a distillation. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, and so on. So and there's a cat girl because I didn't. Want, I basically want to use all the familiar aliens, you know. Uh-huh. These aliens are all completely unfamiliar when Star Trek started. And the idea was at the time there was a lot of friction between us and Russia. There was a lot of friction between their growth of China as a as a, as a uh, economic power. Um, there was a lot of that kind of tension going on. There was a lot of gender, much more. People think there's a lot now, but there's actually more than people were getting killed and they're you know hung up in front of it. There was like old school uh, racial tension. 
uh, a lot of violence being done towards isolated gay men primarily, but women as well. And I was like, if Gene was writing now, this is the subject matter that would be the, this would be the, it would serve as the ground uh, upon which he would build a fresh Star Trek of which, if there had never been one. Um, just as he used race and, you know, the war in Vietnam and all that stuff as the basis for a lot of his work, a lot of the work that was done in the original Star Trek. I think when Star Trek looks only at itself, it becomes kind of boring. I think good television is about the audience, not about itself. So, um, so that's what I tried to construct. Uh, it's been interesting because it was presented to the world as the singer pitch. People have chimed in on it a lot saying, well, I don't like Brian Singer and therefore I'm going to hate this. You know, or, well, of course, Brian Singer thought this up, and, you know, you see what he did with Superman. I, you know, Brian's mandate was very simple. By the way, I never met him. Um, At all, huh? I, I never met the big guys. Everything came oh. through uh, Robert. And my compensation for being part of this project was if the show got made, I'd have been on staff. But the version that we came up with, the version I came up with, was really just the first jump off. So I threw in a lot of things. You know, some things probably some people would find cheesy, like we have an intelligent computer named Nigel. Um, oh, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> nice. How bad? You know, um, but what I wanted was, one of the things I wanted to do with the show that really wasn't in the pitch, but one of the things I would have loved to do with the show is that, well, twist on the captain's log, because I really I've never liked any captain's logs except those done by William Shatner, because there's some quality of voice he had that when he was doing them, they just seemed so urgent. I would tolerate them from um, the Picard character, but I didn't like it with anybody else. But what I thought was interesting is what we have now, based on the internet and all that kind of things, I thought instead of captain's logs at the beginning of the show, you have uh, rank and file soldiers sending letters home. Oh, that's nice. a good idea. Right? Yeah. Awesome, right? Uh -huh. Plus this whole mission where we're trying to find things out secretly while in the front doing normal Star Trek adventures. Right? Yeah. So uh -huh. there's a world a little more cynical now. I really don't think that, um, and I certainly didn't, man, and I still don't really think that you can just present, well, we're just that good. We're just trying to do good and be noble in the universe. I think it works uh, for the kind of minds that we had when we first discovered Star Trek, most of us as children, and that's why we're all so, like, diehard fond of it. But if you had no Star Trek to go on and started a show just like that now, people would describe it as hokey. Adult, no, this is crazy. This, what about this? What about that? Isn't Bones a racist? He's so mean to Spock about his ethnicity every time he says it. You know, if I was Spock, I'd have smacked that guy across the room by now. Except you know? he's Spock, so he doesn't. Spock, you know, but I'm saying, it's like he calls him you green-blooded hobgoblin, you Vulcan freak. These things, like, I'm like, holy crap, you know? And you all laugh when you're a kid, but when you're grown up, you're like, it's kind of an ethnic slur, isn't it? You know? So. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it absolutely really would be. Yeah. See what well, I mean? They don't have the green anti-defamation league coming after them, so of course they, yeah, get, yeah. they don't well, get and, called on it. And the original series was also pretty, pretty sexist. I mean, by, at least by modern standards. I mean, it was advanced for its time, but now. Well, Lord you know, knows they tried to fix that with Voyager. I used to call it Trek for Girls. <laughs> because you had the captain, you had seven of nine, you had a girl, and I do mean girl, uh, in uh, you know engineering. Oh, I love the love the love the We have we have reinvented the Spanish Spitfire, haven't we? Uh, Only she's she's <laughs> Klingon too, so it's all right. Uh, and if you one of the things about original Star Trek was it was fairly sexist, it, unintentionally so because Gene's initial try had a female 
second command. As uh-huh. we'd well know, yeah. All of the uni- all the uniforms were unisex and basically male uniforms, and then they suddenly showed up in these freaking mini skirts with the plunging necklines, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> they were trying to sell it to NBC. And the go-go boots. Uh-huh. These were things that were for forced upon them. What did they but, replace Star Trek with? Uh, Laugh-in with go-go boots and miniskirts. Okay? Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. I mean, True. So True. That shitter, and I think what happens with fans, and I'm one of them, so I, I definitely know this mindset, is that when you realize that it's the Star Trek conventions that created it, the room for Star Trek, the motion picture, there was this die-hard core worldwide of millions of people. That's a guaranteed audience, and it causes a studio to go, all right, well, I don't know if I like the material, but these idiots are going to show up to watch it, and go make some. Well, yeah. it wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened without Star Wars. That's another discussion, I think. But there's this proprietary feeling that the fans, the die-hard fans have of any of these properties where if you don't do it the way they think it is to be authentic they're going to lose their minds about it, which is why there's so much animosity towards J.J. Abrams' version, which to me is a legitimate take. In fact, I thought they took great pains to make sure that you understood the original version you like is intact. You know? And you this is an alternate timeline. Don't get excited, you know? Well, you, you, couldn't have, you couldn't have the reboot series without the Prime Universe existing first. That's right. And I thought they took pains to make sure that that remained true. But the fans think they own it. They think the show's made for them. And it isn't. Nothing made on television is made just for the people who already like it. It's made for everyone. The idea of Star Trek was not to appeal to Trekkers. It was to appeal to everyone in the audience. You know? You have to kind of write a show in a way, if you're going to do it right. And I think that's one of the reasons I appreciate what J.J. and, and Kirschman and Orsi did with this. Was that I say them like you know I'm good pals with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we're we're the fans, they make them for us, and they're all our good buddies because they live in our living room. Never met in my life, but they took pains to say that they took a nod to the fans. We're going to do this, but we're not spitting on you. Yeah, you, and I think that the the thing what I was trying to do with Federation was something similar. That pitches tend to be often cold because they have to describe. Uh, a lot of facets of something that is going to evolve. The first episode of any TV show is generally the worst one. Mm-hmm. And by the time you come into season two, it often, often doesn't even resemble what the, prom- the, pre- what the pilot promised you it would be. Because yeah. it changed, right? The actors have proven themselves to be better or worse. Storylines that you thought were going to fly didn't, so you had to come up with other stuff. You know, So it's always sort of in a state of evolution until you hit that sweet spot, and then it's a state of, okay, how can we maintain the sweet spot? <laughs> yeah, well, um, Star Trek Voyager, in my opinion, didn't even hit stride until season three. Three, you know. Agree. Well, I'm just. I think that was that was true with TNG as well. I mean, I whenever I the next gener- generation started, I, I watched the first season purely out of loyalty to Trek. Right. I kept on going. If if it stays on the air, <laughs> maybe it'll get better. <laughs> well, they had that two year, that un- unprecedented two year contract with UPN, so they could just phone it in, man. You know, they weren't uh-huh. trying that hard. By the third year, they had to work. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was that and explains it. I think it. that makes it a lot different. Yeah, I think getting rid of the basketball, you know, the basketball jersey uniforms, uh, the first <laughs> season was probably a huge thing. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. well, it looked good on Troy, but it didn't look good on anyone else, yeah. especially the boys. So your uh, uh, Jeff, your um, your vision of uh, where Star Trek was was going to go, the way the, uh, I mean, it's it's it takes the Federation and and uh, puts it in its 
in its uh, twilight years, really. Uh, and I can't help thinking that that one of the things that you were hoping to to take advantage of was the fact that the Federation was sort of rotting from the inside out. Well, you know, and it was still alive in the outer edges, but in the middle of it, you had urban blight going on. So is it a dark age or is it a renaissance? It's the Enterprise that makes the difference. Ta-da! Log log. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little of both, I guess. The idea of Star Trek Federation was that the future is in the hands of the people of the society. That it only works if they all participate in that society. And so you throw a thread at them that exploits the fact that they are fracturing. That they're not, it's not that they're, the, the Federation in itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a collection of worlds that agree. So if you're backing out of the Federation, you're not saying, I hate you guys, we're now at war. We're saying that you've served your purpose and now we can govern ourselves. Everyone's friends now. We don't need this. We can still all talk to each other and blah, 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 blah. But I don't need you guys breathing down my neck about my internal activities because we all know they're going to be benign now, you know. Um, and the world is basically, utopia is freaking boring. You know, I think we were, I think I presented not a federation in decline, but a federation that was a victim of its own success, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, the one thing I really love about that pitch, though, Jeff, is, is the fact that, that you're underlying what you said right there at the beginning. That's very Roddenberry. Yes. That's very, very Roddenberry. And I, I love that because, you know, that it gets back to what he was trying to say about us culturally at the beginning. That's right. That's and, exactly and so I really love that aspect of your pitch a great deal. And I think giving people, I mean, there's certain weird little bells and whistles. Some, like you guys are like, yay, Mangel, you know. But there's certain little things you do nods to the uh, to the to core fan base, absolutely. But you also remind them that you don't own this. This is for everybody. And we're going to do some things you guys may find jolting. But we'll, trust us, we'll get you where you want to go, you know. And... As much as I never met my bosses, they seem fine with that. I think the only note that came back from Brian Singer was, what's with the cat? You know? He never saw the the animated version. The whole point of, of putting the cat girl and the three-legged guy in there is, let's do some stuff we couldn't do on real, you know, live-action television. They put in a cat girl. And now we can have a cat girl. Yeah. Right. And we couldn't have the, uh, was it the Kazinti? Because uh, Larry Niven owns them. So I just made up a group and then threw her in there. So the Kathiri? Is that what we call them? Yeah, the Kaithiri. Yeah. yeah. It yeah, would have been okay. fun to have uh, Species 8472 as a crewman. be fun to have data number 1,771,561. You also have a data on every stuff. ship. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That you, yeah, a data on every ship. That would have been an interesting idea. And a chicken in every pot. With, um, one of the things that I thought we did as much as I, and by the way, I freaking love René Bourgeois, was why do you have a shapeshifter character who won't shapeshift? Like, uh, he, he'd move his arm, blah, 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 blah. You know, he'd maybe turn into a stool or something. But it was really, it was a budgetary issue. Because I, it was expensive, yeah. Well, I think the rationale uh, for that was that uh, it scared the people he was with yes. and that he had to work with them. In writing. <laughs> you know, it was in the writing, so... But with Diz in Federation, he he is only a he because the suit that they put him in, this plasticine thing that makes him look basically like a picture Diz as a clear bag and a hard a hard suit bag that looks like a man that is constantly swirling blue gases inside him. Well, 
in English language, the default gender when unknown is the masculine. That's that's a law of English language. Uh, if you're if you're speaking another language, then you probably do it's something else. This is upgrade to his own suit because he has no gender. He just looks like a dude. Um, his upgrade to his own suit would be female coming in in season two. So that actor would only be in for season one. And then you bring in another actor for season two. And if Diz decided he wanted to be a freaking turtle in season three, that's what you'd have as your engineer. Because he's just... <laughs> you know, and that's probably easier to scuttle around in the, in the you know, exactly. work core that way. That was, I wanted to play somewhat with the alienness of some of the aliens. Like have them, you know, be somewhat alien in their behaviors and attitudes, you know. They're not um, going to act like humans because they're aliens. Let's do alien things. And luckily, Star Trek Titan, the book series, came along, and uh, it was basically that idea, just done in book form without the without the decline of the Federation. They just give Riker and Troy their own ship, and fill it with the most crazy, diverse number of crazy, crazy, disparate kinds of aliens <laughs> that you could never put on television because the budget would be destroyed. Um, well, the, the comic books did that too. They had a horde of crewmen. And he just paddled around in the warp core like nothing hurt because it didn't it didn't affect him. Hey. Radiation yawn. Yeah. Push the button. Right, let's let to that. You know, let's let's evolve. Let let Star Trek breathe. And I think if nothing else, the the reboot that J.J. Abrams and his crew came up with forces you, whether you like it or not, you now must let Star Trek breathe. Well, uh, and we'll want to talk to you once once it's past spoiler space. Yeah. And uh, discuss what. Oh, the new one. The the new the new movie, which will be out in a few weeks, as as this is. Uh, oh, broadcast. Can't even stand it. I mean, they they it's their ball to drop at this point. I I really quite enjoyed the first one. Um, and, and I liked the first one all except for the fact that the engine room looks suspiciously like a uh, beer brewery. Honey, it was a beer brewery. It was a beer brewery. I know. They they did not do very much to disguise that fact. A lot of the shooting locations were in, like, within two miles of this, where we're sitting. Yeah, they they shot the engine room uh, over here in uh, Chatsworth at the Budweiser brewing Mm -hmm. plant. And the problem was it looked like the Budweiser brewing plant and not a starship. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they just completely... Well, let me ask you this. Like, we're all people who've seen probably between us every single, you know, space drama. That's, yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Design-wise, like, if you're going to make some kind of mark, what are you going to do? Because you have to balance it between, like, what do you think would really would it really look like, which is probably pretty boring if NASA's designs are any indication, or uh, what will be interesting but not something they've all seen before. Well, yeah. I would... If we could answer that question, we wouldn't be on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) What I would do, uh, what disappointed me about the engine room sequence in uh, uh, the Star Trek 2009 reboot was the fact that nothing looked like engine parts. Yeah. I mean, nothing looked like a power supply. Nothing looked like it did anything. Right. And and because it... it, uh, There's no general visual organization to the... To the facility, it just looked like a bunch of tanks, you know, with plumbing. Well, and imagine just... yourself as a as a man from the nineteenth century. No, let's say the ninth century, looking at under the hood of a, a Volkswagen. What are you going to make of it? Right. 
So, like, we're both... You have no referent. Yeah, I... I, I suppose, but unfortunately, it looked like something that was so similar to things I'd already seen that I couldn't get away from. Oh, they're at Budweiser. Uh, yeah, I. You know, every, there's always a flaw. There's nothing is nothing descends from your mind to reality without some flaw. And pound for pound, like if that's a flaw, and I can see that it might be. Uh, if it's a flaw, it's a minor one in the overall. You know, I thought they got. The one thing, my biggest issue with these things is it's Star Trek, not Star Wars. Uh-huh. You know, and I don't mean it like the other franchise is bad or good. Right. It's that Star Trek, the title of the show tells you the show. It's yeah. Trek. It's not right. bad. You know, uh-huh. there's a whole engine of Star Trek fans that are constantly, you know, banging the desk for a war between, you know, Civilization X and Civilization Y. And I'm like, have you missed the point of this show? Well, they're all eight-year-olds going, who, if they fought, who would win? You know, uh-huh. the Klingons and the Romulans fought, who would win? Uh, hmm. it's, you know, it's putting bugs in a jar and shaking it up and watching them fight. I only want to see if we can learn something from it. Jeffrey Thorne, it has been a great pleasure having you with us and talking about uh, all of your experiences writing for Star Trek and and uh, and the comic books and, and uh, your other projects. Uh, it's, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to have you back to talk about the new project that you can't talk about yet. Once that comes out. How about this? I'll guarantee you guys that when it's ready, you'll be the fifth person to know. Okay. That sounds (laughs) like Your wife comes Uh first. We get it. Do it talking about it unless it's to you guys first. Awesome. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. That's great. But I want to do a roundtable of our favorite people to talk to about Star Trek once once we're a few weeks out from the the Star Trek... uh, into Darkness premiere, and uh-huh. uh, everyone's seen it, and no more spoiler worries, and okay, how'd they do? Count me in. You okay, got great. It. <laughs> because I've, I've, I've actually done a little work on Star Trek myself. I, have, I was a prop maker back in uh, the early, uh, late 80s, and some of my stuff ended up on Star Trek The Next Generation. So and I I know people who were prop makers for uh, TNG and and Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and the ones who put you know pictures of pretty girls on the uh, on the screen. The photograms and, and, the... and yeah, because saying well we need celestial bodies, boomtish. <laughs> <laughs> so we could actually we could actually have sort of a Star Trek uh, Star Trek reunion practically on the show from all the people we know. So yeah, you'd be great we'll to have on the in. show. We'll count you in. We'll definitely. count you in. Def- absolutely. And with that, I think it's probably time to push the button. All right, guys. You want to push the button? Push it's, it's my turn. It is your turn. Okay. Okay. You have been listening to the episode of Krypton Radio's The Event Horizon for April 11th, 2013. Our guest this evening has been Jeffrey Thorne, science fiction writer, comic book writer, and screenwriter. If you're just tuning in or just caught the tail end of the show, you can hear it again on Sunday, that's tomorrow, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox, with guest panelist, science fiction author, and game designer Neil Halford. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. 
The part of the science officer was played by veteran science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. If you have a company or a product and you would like to be an Event Horizon sponsor, now is your chance. Email us at kryptonradio at kryptonradio.com for more information. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>